0: Amen. It was awesome, guys. Thank you. The only problem is, uh, I, I may have lost my voice, um, but it's a good problem. Really, really appreciate that. I was telling the first service that I've been trying to uh, convince the band to play that song forever. It's one of my favorite songs, Spirit of Living God. And uh, I tried to pull a coup when Ryan was gone and just like go straight to Hannah and be like, hey, Ryan really wants you to play this. I mean, I... But I really appreciate it. It's a really powerful song to me. So I have a question. I want to do a little experiment. How many of you, and I want a show of hands, raise your hand. How many of you have noticed the traffic? (laughs) If you haven't, you don't get outside your house ever. (laughs) The reason I want to bring this up is during this time of year, we all know what happens. People from places where it's cold like to come enjoy our place. Apparently up there, they don't have cars. Or the speed limit's three miles an hour. One or the other. If you are those people, we still love you, but you need to drive faster. I don't know what's going on up there. Like, maybe it's the snow, maybe they're not used to just being able to drive, but it's like, like sunrise, it's like a parking lot. What is there to see on sunrise? Why are they going so slow? And if you're like me, you're very patient, you know? No, if you're like me, you're honking and you're weaving and you're screaming. And you're like, it's 45 miles an hour. Why are you going to? This doesn't make any sense. But the reason I bring this up is because if if you are like me, you have a really hard time slowing down. And this is our culture in a lot of ways, right? We're very busy culture. We go, go, go. We wake up in the morning. We know what we're going to do. We got our coffee pot set. We get up. We drink our coffee so we get the jet fuel and then we get out and we start hammering away at things all day we come home we get stuff done we make dinner and then maybe we chill out and watch an hour of tv but then sometimes we feel like we should be doing work while we're watching tv so it's like we're always going it's really hard hard to slow down and it affects us in traffic obviously but i say that because i think one of the issues that we have especially when we come to passages like we're going to read this morning in first samuel 10 starting in chapter 17 so you can turn there in your bibles is We don't slow down when we read scripture. We rush through it. We try to read it. We try to get it. Good story. Great. Okay. Next chapter. Or we did it one time. It feels good. The problem is we have to slow down, especially in passages like this, especially in the book that we're going through. We have to slow down. We have to think. We have to ponder. We have to reflect. We have to focus. And so what we're going to try to do this morning is slow down. We're going to try to slow down and just work through the passage together and kind of see what the Lord can bring to us when we spend time thinking and focusing and trying to analyze what is actually happening in the story instead of just read through it and get it done. So we're going to jump in at verse 17, 1 Samuel 10. Verse 17 says this, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands." So you can tell it's election day in Israel. All the people gather together at this place called Mizpah. So they all come in town. And this is an interesting place. This is a significant place. If you've been tracking with us through Samuel, remember in chapter 7, something crazy happens at Mizpah. There, the Philistines are, are clamping down on them. And they don't have anywhere to turn. So they turn to God. And they ask God in prayer to help them out. And God sends thunder down. it confuses the philistines and they destroy them and they're saved so this is a very powerfully stimulating site it's a sacred site it's important site so they gather here to elect a king and samuel's got one more opportunity to kind of stick the knife in and say listen do you know what you're doing here you're rejecting your god you're rejecting the true king the same guy the same god That brought you out of Egypt, that delivers you from all the kingdoms that were oppressing you, a God that can deliver. You're rejecting him because you're saying, We don't want you anymore, God. We'll come to you when we need you, but we want a human king. We want someone, as we've seen, to fight our battles. So it's okay. We don't really care that we're rejecting you because we want something we can see, something we can touch, something that we can associate with. So that way we feel safe, we feel comfortable. And we think we'll be happy that way. So because God's unseen and way out there and who knows and kind of hard to trust in him, I don't really know if he's capable, even though he's sent in this very place, thunder, to help us destroy our enemies. God, you're going to have to move to the side because we want a king the way that we want it. They don't see it. And it's really quite unbelievable. They don't see God for who he is. They don't see him as king and deliverer. And it's interesting. Here, they're re- completely rejecting God to his face, and yet God doesn't reject them. This happens all throughout the story of the people of God. We reject him, and he stays faithful to us. So we pick it up. They're going to elect a king in verse 20. It says this, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, Lot essentially means uh, casting votes. They casted lots, which is like casting votes. So they're casting votes here. So the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matriarchs was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So they got their king, Saul, son of Kish. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So they have this election process and they, they first choose Benjamin and then they choose this family, this clan inside of Benjamin, the Matrites. And then they choose Saul, son of Kish. And it's interesting. God is remarkably absent from this election process. It's not as if they're going before the Lord. Which tribe should we choose? Which family should we choose? Who should be our king? It's, like, it's almost like God is kind of put on the periphery. And they want to figure out who their king is going to be. And they find him. And then... They can't find him because he's hiding. I don't know why he's hiding. Maybe he doesn't want to be king. Maybe he's hoping that they'll pass over him and say, okay, well, this guy's not here, so we'll go for someone else. Uh, maybe he's just in a really long game of and go seek, and he's got a great spot. And he doesn't want to give it up. Has that ever happened to you? It's like, I got a great spot. There's no way I'm coming out. No. I don't know. But he's hiding in the baggage, which is presumably all the bags that everyone was carrying to Mizpah for election day, their, their luggage, and he's hiding in there. And then they do something, which is so ironic. The God that they don't want really to deal with, and they want to put him on the side, they don't want him anymore. They're like, well, we don't know where our king is, so I guess we got to go to God. So the people of God go to the true king when it's convenient. When they don't have anywhere else to go, and they've exhausted all other options. So they go to God and say, hey, where's this guy at? He's in the baggage. God actually answers them, and they find him, they bring him up, Put him before the people, and he's really tall, and he looks like a king, and he's great, and the people go nuts, and they, long live the king. It's exciting. It's an exciting day in Israel. They accept him because of his bodily stature, because of his physical appearance, because it's something they can see, they can touch, and they can relate with. They have their king, and today is the first king of Israel, and it will mark a kingship that will rule for 500 years until they're eventually taken over by another king of Babylon. Who will enslave them and then god one day again will be merciful to his people who reject him and don't want him as deliverer, and he'll send the real king and they'll kill him but today we have the first king saul son of kish a strapping gq model of a man he's handsome he's tall he looks the part and then it says this in verse 25 samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Sam also went, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So after he's elected, Samuel writes down the law and the rights and the duties and the responsibilities of the king. So essentially, he scribes on a scroll for everyone to know, to stand the test of time, this is what it looks like to be a king of Israel. This is what it looks like to be an honorable king, a godly king. And he presents it before the Lord. It's like their constitution. And then everybody goes home. And Saul kind of Perplexingly, goes back home as well, and then, per usual, when someone is lifted up and elevated, you have detractors, and they don't like Saul. They don't think he can do what he says they can do. They don't think that he can save them and fight their battles, and so they not only reject him with their words, but they reject him with their actions because they don't bring him a present. It's like five-year-olds, you know, when they get in a fight, it's like, "Well, I'm not bringing a present to your birthday party." But Saul apparently has enough presents, or he didn't like what they were going to give him anyway. So he forgives them, and he, he holds his peace. And all is well in Israel. Everyone is happy. Things are great. Scene change, right? This is the moment in the movie where they're building the protagonist and the hero, and then there's that moment, that scene change, where something's got to give. And I want to read you a part of your Bible that's missing. You're like, what? Early in the translation process, for some reason, this verse verses were left out accidentally lost and until 1947 when the dead sea scrolls were found which predated all of the manuscripts that we have of the old testament we didn't know this existed and now we do and it provides great context between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11 of what's happening here's what it says now nahash whose name ironically means snake Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been grievously oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites. He would gouge out the right eye of each of them and would not grant Israel a deliverer. No one was left of Israel across the Jordan whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But there were 7,000 men who had escaped from the Ammonites and had entered Jabesh Gilead. So this is where we pick up. We pick up in Jabesh Gilead in your Bible in verse 1 of the 7,000 men that have escaped Nahash, the Ammonite, who's been oppressing the people and they're hiding there. And here's what happens. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, Then Nahash, the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So you know that Saul is back in his hometown. He's in Gibeah, and he's back to his old job. He's farming and taking care of the livestock, which is kind of confusing, because you wouldn't imagine that, right? In the story, you would think, long live the king. They write it down, what he's supposed to do, and then he goes to his palace, or at least a really big house. And he goes there, and he's got his servants, and he's got his court, that he, and he's got his edicts that he's beginning to rule over and he's strategizing for the plan for israel but none of that happens he goes back home and we don't really know why maybe he's still trying to avoid the king thing maybe the palace is being built so he's going to go home and kind of enjoy the simple life before the palace is built and celebrity hits maybe there's never been a human king in israel so simply they just don't know what to do there's no precedent so it's like uh what do i do i'm just gonna go home hang out Regardless, he's home. And they hear the news of this crazed psychopath, Nahash. This test is brought before him. This is that moment where Saul is going to be tested. Is he the king that we thought he was? Will he fight our battles? Will he deliver us? You have that moment. And here's the test. Nahash, the psycho... For Saul and Israel. And so Nahash is coming back for revenge. He wants these 7,000 people that escaped. And he doesn't just want them. He wants their eyes. I mean, let's stop for a second. You probably, maybe you just read through this. I mean, this guy's crazy. He's not like just a normal bad dude. He's equivalent to the likes of Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan and Nero. He wants to inflict gratuitous pain and humiliation on the hapless. That's what he wants to do. He's insane. I mean, look at the text as we slowly went through it. They offer to make a treaty with him and give themselves over to him so that they'll serve him, to be his servants. And he says, no, 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 no. I want your eyes too. It's like he's got like a collection jar. He's planning to be a doctor. I don't know what his deal is with eyes, but he's really got to have eyes. And he wants to shame them. He wants to humiliate them. He wants to torture torture them. He wants to laugh at their demise. I mean, he's a sick human being sadly it doesn't maybe when you're reading through it doesn't phase you much because it's kind of a recurring theme in the fabric of human history but this guy's crazy and then the people say okay listen if we're gonna give you our eyes and be slaves give us seven days so we can send messengers and try to get like an army or someone to come save us and then Nahash is like yeah it's a fair deal they're like what no who would ever say that's okay Maybe he's just crazy. Maybe he needs seven days to sharpen his scalpels. I don't, you know, who knows what the reason is, but he gives them seven days. I think it's probably because Nahash knows Israel. He doesn't think anything's going to happen. He doesn't expect anybody to come. So he's like, I'll give you seven days as long as I get your eyes. We're good. Because he knows Israel's been infighting and totally disoriented and scattered about. He has no idea that there's a king. And frankly, he doesn't really care who the God is either. So now we're in verse 5 when Saul hears about this. says this, Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, You shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So Saul hears about this. He hears about what's happening in the oppression. And it says that immediately he's rushed, he's overcome with the spirit of God. And his anger is greatly kindled. And this is that moment in the film, right, where there's that turning point, there's that scene change, there's that test, and you're getting jacked up you know what's about to happen. You get on the edge of your seat. You're screaming at the TV, which makes no sense. You're thinking maybe I should punch the wall right now. If someone breaks in, I'm going to beat them down. It's going to be awesome. You're just jacked out of your mind because it's game time, right? It is game time. And you would fight in the battle if you could get in there. But let's stop for a second and slow down. Notice what happens. Saul hears about the oppression And this crazy guy named Nahash, whose name means snake, and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and kindles his anger greatly. Why does this deserve a pause? Why should we think about that as we're reading through? Well, it shows us something about our God, shows us something about our king. We have a king who hates oppression, and he hates the oppressor and he wants to rescue and deliver the tortured and the humiliated and the suffering and the oppressed he wants to be the deliverer for those that don't have one to our king is so he overcomes saul and he moves them to action and they go out and they gather together all these people and saul's like jacked up so this is kind of weird if you're picturing it he's like jacked up he's got the spirit maybe he pulls out a sword and he starts cutting the oxen up you're like whoa saul calm down bud Let's save that for the Ammonites. That's weird. But he cuts the oxen in 12 pieces and he sends it out to all the tribes, invoking an image that you read earlier and you've heard of in Judges 19, where the concubine is abused and murdered and she's cut up into 12 pieces and sent out to all the tribes as a sign and a symbol for the depravity of Israel and as a call to action, to change, to say, look who we've become. We need to do something about it. And so Saul is invoking that image and he sends out the oxen and the people get it and they're moved and they come together as one man and it says there's 300,000 men of Israel and 30,000 men of Judah. It's 330,000 people but if you don't slow down you won't notice something. There's a separation between Judah and Israel which is weird because Judah is a part of Israel. But the author is hinting at the division that will come between Judah and Israel one day. So he divides them. 300,000 men of Israel, 30,000 men of Judah, and they come together at Bezek as one man. And Saul tells the messengers, go tell the men that are hiding out in Jabesh Gilead that tomorrow when the sun's hot, salvation is coming, we're going to deliver you. So they get excited. And I think the next verse, when it says that they went and told someone, that tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you and you can do whatever you want with us. I think they're actually telling Nahash that as seems like a clever lie to kind of keep him off of his toes because earlier they said that they will give him whatever they want. So Nahash thinks that they're going to give themselves up tomorrow and Saul comes in the morning with his company and three companies and he comes and he utterly destroys Nahash and the Ammonites when they're least expecting it. And it says that they were destroyed to the point that there were few people left and even the people that were left were so scattered that no two of them were together. It's like in the war movie, you know, I'm talking about where there's a war and there's that guy that's kind of disoriented and his ears are ringing and it's really confusing and he doesn't know where anybody is and he's all alone. I mean, that point of destruction. And the people go crazy for Saul. He's it, he's the king. He fights their battles and he wins and he took them out of the oppression of nahash the ammonite he delivered them and then you see next that they're so excited and so pumped for saul that they want to go destroy his detractors it says in verse 12 then the people said to samuel who is it that said shall 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 saul reign over us bring the men that we may put them to death but saul said not a man shall be put to death this day For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul their king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they want to kill his detractors, and Saul says, No, let's not do that. We don't want to put anyone else to death. And then Saul, to his credit, does something great. He gives all the credit and honor and glory to God. He says, I, I, I know that I led and I'm the king and we, we destroyed them and it was great and it was a clever tactic. But God's the one that delivered us today. He's the one that works salvation today. So we need to ascribe him the honor and the glory. Put him in his proper place. So whether or not the people heard it, Saul promotes that and says, it's the Lord that delivered us. And they go to Gilgal and they renew the kingdom And they sacrifice peace offerings or thank you offerings to God and they rejoice greatly. Great story. Phenomenal story. Enthralling story. The last few chapters of Samuel could be made into a movie and it would be awesome. But What do we get from it? What do we take from this? And as I mentioned earlier, if you were doing personal worship and if you've read through this passage it can be a mixed bag, right? It can be enthralling in one moment and exciting because the stories are incredible. But at the same moment, it can be extremely frustrating because you're reading through it and you're like, I don't know a lot of this stuff. I don't know what a lot of these things mean. I'm kind of confused. And so you read it one day and you maybe write in your journal a few things. God, you're great. Saul was pretty cool. Whatever you're writing. And then maybe you justify, I don't really need to spend any more time in it this week because if i read it again i'm not going to get anything out of it i read it one time i got the story check we're good because it's really hard for us in the old testament and historical literature in particular to get something out of it the new testament's way easier so is psalms and the proverbs it kind of says do this don't do that think this way don't think that way this is a good idea this is a bad idea your god loves you here's how much he died for you rose from the dead it's it's easy stuff not easy but easier This is a lot more difficult, especially because we don't slow down. We just read through it. We don't slowly read, think, reflect, ponder. And I think that if we really valued God's word as his word, it would excite us to slow down. To really slowly work through it. And ultimately, Reformation Study Bible helps as well. So if you don't have one of those, you should get one of the $25 in the back. they got notes in the bottom. Shameless plug. But I think what we're about to look at, what we're about to see, every single one of us in this room could get. Every single one of us could understand if we just slowed down. If you look at the passage, it's framed in an interesting way. The very beginning part talks about God delivering his people from oppression. Samuel talks about them being delivered from Egypt. And then you have the people electing a king. And then right after that, in the next section, you have Samuel writing down the list and the duties of an honorable, godly king. Then you have a scene change. You have the example of a dishonorable, ungodly king in Nahash. Immediately after that, you have Saul proving himself to the people as the rightful king. And then lastly, you have Saul ascribing the glory and the honor to God as being the deliverer from the oppression, not him. And so when you look at this and when you ponder and when you think about this passage, a lot of insights may jump up, and those are valid and those are good. But I think one really stands out, and it's this. The king delivers the oppressed from the oppressor. It's a simple idea. We've heard it a lot, right? we get it, we know it, God delivers the oppressed, he sets the captive free, he saves us, he rescues us, he forgives the condemned, we get it, we got it. We know Jesus is Savior. That's the whole idea, right? He saves us. But I don't think we get it. I know that a lot of times I don't get it. And it's really easy to tell that because I could just have to look at the thrones that I have in my life and where I put God, right? There's one throne, or maybe a few, that are really important to me, and God's on that sometimes, but a lot of times he's moved to the left or to the right. And let's give ourselves some credit. It's a pretty important throne that we put God on because you're here this morning at church. That's good. If you believe in Jesus as your savior, you know that you're forgiven and that you'll be with him one day. That's good. There are probably moments and times and varying degrees of circumstances that you trust in God and you believe in him. And that's good. But is he your sole source of deliverance? I mean, truly, is you the one that you, you seek after and you trust in for safety and comfort? This is a really probing question, at least it was for me as I wrote it down. If you lost everything, everything, would you still have everything? Everything that was important and valuable to you, if it was stripped away, would you still have everything you need? So I think the problem is we've set up all these false gods and these false kings in our lives and we worship them and we move them around maybe, but we place them either equivalent to or over God. And so we have a hard time trusting in and believing and seeing in practical life God as our sole deliverer, our sole source of safety, comfort, and satisfaction. Because at the end of the day, I don't think we really think we're oppressed. We don't really think we need saving We don't really identify ourselves as captives. Now, maybe sometimes in struggle and suffering, we place God as supreme and we view him as deliverer because we got nowhere else to turn like the Israelites when they couldn't find Saul. They're like, okay, we can't find him. God will go to you. Certain times maybe, but most of the time we have everything we want more and we don't think we have enough. And so what do we do? We run, we grind, we toil, we get busy, we're active, we're trying to achieve more, collect, gain. All for the purpose of trying to keep ourselves free, keep ourselves safe, comfortable, happy, satisfied. We want to stay away from the burden of financial struggle or physical struggle or emotional struggle. We want to stay free of discontentment. We want to stay free of bondage. We want to stay free of discomfort. It's how we live and what we live for. And if we do a little introspection and we look behind our pursuits and the attitudes and the motivations that we have, we can realize that they're a little bit off. I mean, why do you in your heart believe that you need fill in the blank or fill in the blank? Why is it so necessary that without the achievement or the collection of fill in the blank, you may not be happy, and it may be uncomfortable. Why will it keep you safe? Why will it keep you comfortable? Why will it make you happy? See, this is, this is what we journey through. This is the process through which we journey through. This is our subconscious that affects our conscious. And it's a lie, and it's an insidious lie. And it's not just insidious because the kind of Christian phrase that don't trust in anything besides God because it'll fail you one day. Though that's true, it's deeper than that. It's way more insidious than that because not only will it fail you one day, the very things that we pursue that we think are freeing us and making us comfortable and making us safe are in fact oppressing us and putting more chains on us. And making us less and less free. Though we think it's the opposite. Essentially, we look at our oppressor when we trust in all these other things besides God as our deliverer and we say, you can have our right eye and our left and everything else. Because Christianity is not some neat, nice package to create moral people that help maintain the status quo in society. Christianity is insane. It's crazy and if you've never thought that you need to think that it is crazy And it stands in the face and completely against everything that culture and everything outside this, these doors promotes Here's what christianity says god loves and has a passion for freeing the oppressed So he took action and here's what he did. He came as a human being god Came as a human Think about that In a virgin that makes a lot of sense And was born in a dark, smelly cave and placed in a feeding trough. The king of the world, first place to sleep, was in a feeding trough. And then he lived humbly for 30 years. We know very little about his life. And then he has three years of public ministry. And what does he do? He loves, he forgives, and he frees the oppressed. The oppressed emotionally, prostitutes. The oppressed physically, the blind and the lame. And the oppressed spiritually. Well, everyone. And he said he was God, he said he was king, he said he had a kingdom and that you could be a part of it. But he also said you had to be perfect. So we had a little problem. And and then this king said, "Don't worry, I got you. I'm a sacrificial king. I'm very gracious, I'm very merciful. So I'm going to destroy the oppressor who's oppressing you. I'm going to expose his lie. I'm going to destroy the snake." And I don't need 330,000 men to do it. I don't need a cleverly crafted lie so that I can come ambush in the morning. I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm going to do it in a really weird way. I'm going to allow him to think he's won by killing me. And he's going to celebrate and it's going to be three days of a party and then I'm going to come out of the grave. I'm going to actually resurrect from the dead. And I'm going to prove that I am, in fact, the king that I said I was. And then I'm going to build up an army of people. We'll call it the church. And it's going to be armed with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to fight battles, not with swords, but with love and respect. And a gospel message that the oppressed are set free with the Holy Spirit. And this oppressor will have to watch as the church, as the army of the Lord is built up until the final stomp comes one day. And the church, the army, will not believe the lies of the oppressor because that makes no sense. And we won't make treaties with him. This is Christianity. This is what it means. This is the context that we're to live our life in every day and every pursuit and everything that we do. We were oppressed people, but we have been set free. And if we really, truly believe that, it sounds insane to believe the lies of the psychopath that once oppressed us. And the Bible is named Satan. It's insane to believe his lies because we've been set free. So we're not going to make any treaties with him because we have a new king, we have a new ruler, and we have a new kingdom, and we're going to live the way that that kingdom tells us to live because we should trust that that's where safety, comfort, and satisfaction comes from. Not from all the other little things that we put up above. We are delivered people. And we need to encourage each other in that. We need to live in that freedom. We need to be the church, the army of the Lord, that comes together and challenges and encourages each other to believe that truth. That we are set free, and we are free to live for our king, and we should reject the treaties and the lies that our old oppressor wants us to believe. May we believe that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning and this time to gather gather together as the army of the Lord and to worship you because you are so great. You are unfathomably great. And Lord, you are unseen, but you are so near. God, we pray that we as a church would trust you, that we would believe you, that we would recognize the different thrones and the different kings that we have set up, over you and equivalent to you, and that we would tear them down and place you as supreme where you deserve to be. That we wouldn't seek you when it's convenient and when there's no other options, but we would seek you daily. That we would live within the context that we have a king who's freed us and placed us in his kingdom. That we were oppressed, but now we're rescued. Lord, help us to see you as our soul deliverer and the one that provides true safety, true comfort, and satisfaction. Help us not to believe the lies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.